0: The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks, and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and give expecting nothing in return. This is the word
1: in black and red.
0: And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old llama, and be joined today by the wonderful Laz, Pastor Sarah, and Arnold. Thank you all for being here. Now, I know that we're going to have a rich discussion, so we're going to go straight into the scripture. Genesis eighteen sixteen through 33 The men got up from there and went over to look down on Sodom. Abraham was walking along with them to send them off, when the Lord said, Will I keep from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will certainly become a great populous nation, and all the earth's nations will be blessed because of him. I have formed a relationship with him, so that he will instruct his children and his household after him, and they will keep to the Lord's path, being moral and just, so that the Lord can do for Abraham everything God said God would. Then the Lord said, the cries of injustice from Sodom and Gomorrah are countless, and their sin is very serious. I will go down now to examine the cries of injustice that have reached me. Have they really done all this? If not, I want to know. The men turned away and walked toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing in front of the Lord. Abraham approached and said, "Will you really sweep away the innocent with the guilty? What if there are 50 innocent people in the city?" Will you really sweep it away and not save the place for the sake of the fifty innocent people in it? It's not like you to do this, killing the innocent with the guilty as if there was no difference. It's not like you. Will the judge of all the earth not act justly? The Lord said, If I find fifty innocent people in the city of Sodom, I will save it because of them. Abraham responded, Since I've already decided to speak with my Lord, even though I'm just soil and ash, what if there are five fewer innocent people than fifty? Will you destroy this whole city over just five? The Lord said, If I find forty-five there, I won't destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke, What if forty are there? The Lord said, For the sake of forty, I will do nothing. Abraham said, Don't be angry with me, my Lord, but let me speak. What if thirty are there? The Lord said, I won't do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Since I've already decided to speak with my Lord, what if 20 are there? The Lord said, I won't do it for the sake of 20. Abraham said, don't be angry with me, my Lord, but let me speak just once more. What if there are 10? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it because of those 10. When the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, God left, but Abraham stayed there in that place. Long-time listener, you'll remember in the last couple of episodes, we read the portion just before this, where three men appear before Abraham and tell Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a kid, despite being very old, right? And Abraham runs out, and is very hospitable to them, and gives them this giant feast, and then the three men get up from there and go and look at Sodom. And uh, if you were paying attention to two episodes ago you'll remember that Rabbi Noyo was talking about the fact that these different angels had different missions. Well, it turns out that Gabriel's mission, according to uh, the Midrash, was to go and destroy Sodom. And so that is why Gabriel was here among uh, Michael and Raphael, but they get stopped in this by going and having this conversation with Abraham. So I think that some of the most interesting things in this text are the fact that on the one hand, God is trying to figure out How involved do I want Abraham to be in this decision that I'm about to make? Will I keep Abraham from what I'm about to do? And then God decides, no, I'm not going to keep Abraham from what I'm going to do. But that God is still very concerned with the injustices that Sodom and Gomorrah are committing, and, and the cries of injustice that are reaching God from that city. And then Abraham feels strong enough to go in and make a deal with God the first deal with God that causes people not to be destroyed, right? Abraham might know the story of Noah and hearing that God had destroyed all the people before, or maybe he doesn't know that story and says, the God that I know wouldn't do this if there were innocent people here. So anyway, I'm very interested in where this conversation is going to go.
2: So this has, like, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, and then the question is asked to the Lord: What if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Cool, fine. Why does like it's such a weird thing? Like if I'm talking to you, Micah, I'm not going to say, "Well, since I have been so bold as to speak to the wise old Lama MB then you know, wise old Lama MB here's my question." Like it's a like that's is that cultural phrasing, or is that one of those like maybe we're talking the Lord is a different manifestation or? particular portion of Hashem you know like what what's going on with that
0: yeah so I I think that what's going on here is that this is all foreshadowing right of what's about to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham is saying my very being is just the same gunk that you're about to turn the city into right and I'm just made of soil and ash but you're right, there is this strangely like deferential tone that Abraham has really not struck with God before here in this text. I, I'm i very interested in what y'all's thoughts are.
3: Yeah, it sounds like you're bargaining in the market. <laughs> like it, it sounds like a script you would use, because he doesn't start with, well, what if there are 10 people? He starts with, how about 45? Okay, well, how about 30, right? So it's this, well, and he's humbling himself. At, but, but also reminding God that, Abraham, even though Abraham's been chosen to be this patriarch of, you know, this great nation, Abraham's made a lot of mistakes. So reminding God, listen, I'm humble. I'm not perfect, even though I just showed all this great hospitality to your angels or whatever just happened. You know, he also tried to give his wife away to Pharaoh. And there's that whole son sacrificing thing that's going to happen. And he kicks one of his kids out and sends them to the desert to die. Like, you know.
0: I think you're right on the money, Sarah, that it is bargaining, right? It is trying to make the other person, you know, when, you're, when you have bardic inspiration and in D&D, right, what do you do? You talk up the other person, give them all of this, you know, hullabaloo, and hope that you roll high enough that you're successful, right? <laughs> and I think that it's particularly important here because Abraham is, is coming from this very humble place saying, like, you don't owe me anything, God, but I know who you are. Right? And the person that I know wouldn't do this horrible thing.
1: I think that also this reflects the idea of showing deference to anyone that you're in a negotiating relationship with, it comes up again. Oh, uh, I don't think we've gotten to that section yet, but when Abraham purchases a tomb uh, to bury his wife, know uh, yeah, that doesn't come up until Sarah has died and so he's he's bargaining to buy the tomb and there the two of them you know Abraham and uh is it I can't remember the person's name each of them is basically arguing the other's inter- self-interest you know mm-hmm. so you know so, so instead of Abraham saying you know this is my top price it's kind of like he's, you know the other guy offers you know a certain price and Abraham says oh no that's not enough you know i couldn't i couldn't possibly pay you any less than such and such. yeah, And then, you know, they agree on that. And it's just kind of like the formal negotiating customs, you know, of that time and place. I also wanted to comment the thing about uh, God saying, you know, will I share with Abraham what I'm about mm. to do? Uh, I've said before in a previous episode that I think one of the themes that runs through Genesis is that God has to learn how to deal with these humans that he's created. He doesn't really understand his own creation. And I think in Abraham, he finds somebody who can actually help him understand, you know. So I think God has come to the point where he trusts Abraham to tell him if he's getting it right or not. And so I think maybe, you know, the way the narrative is running, God is not certain that he's actually, you know, got it right. And, you know, uh, should I tell Abraham? Yeah, I'll tell him. And then Abraham says, well, 50, you know, 50 people are too many, too many righteous people to wipe out because of a crappy city. You know, and then he keeps bargaining down to 10. And I've always wondered, why does Abraham stop at 10? You know, because he knows that his relatives there are not even 10 people. Uh, so I'm not really sure. You know, that that's just been one of my questions always. Is, He's
3: not sure Uncle Bob is righteous or not.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) My question, yeah, I think you're right about like the bargaining. And I think it's just so interesting as we've been looking at this Genesis pieces where the divine here is so much less omnipotent, you know, all knowing, all capable than, you know, Christian tradition, at least as I had been raised in, likes to portray the divine as and it's just the characters have negotiated the divine into different acts before so if you're gonna argue with a pretty malleable lord why instead of saying don't kill 50 people why not be like i mean i've watched you make like elephants out of mud (laughs) and people out of dirt and you know your breath creates whole universes why not if you want 50 righteous people just make them right Mm. like you know plus what is your definition here god of righteous because maybe that's clear in the text but like like there are other creative solutions other than talking god down in a number so why like why this among all possible options like i don't know but it's weird and it's a departure from the embodiment that we've been dealing with at least on you know the sections i've been looking at with you all
3: I wonder if it has something to do with Abraham's journey. So, in the passage right before this, Abraham is 100 years old and his wife gets pregnant. Like, that has to instill some amount of fear in Abraham. Like, I think Abraham's been more mouthy towards God and, like, more bold (laughs) with God. And then that happens and Abraham's like, I am nothing. You just got my very elderly wife pregnant. I'm supposed to raise a child at 100 years old. Like... I think Abraham's taking a different approach. I think something significant has happened in his life, and something has changed that has shifted the way that he relates Mm. to God.
0: Well, and to bring this back to a leftist point, right? Like, the fact that for many of us who were committed to leftism before we began having families, right, That that leftism has to change in some way. Suddenly you have an obligation to not just your community, but a very specific and special community that lives under the same roof as you do, presumably, (laughs) Um, or hopefully, you know, lives under the same roof as you. And it does change things, right? It changes the moral calculus that you have to make when you recognize that you have a specific obligation to your family, which puts in stark contrast this command from Jesus to reject your father, your mother, your sisters, and your brothers, and to follow me instead. I'm not going to explore that particular command of Jesus any further here. I'm just going to say, I think you're right on the money there, that Abraham is now in this different place than he used to be, where, you know, previously, in just two passages ago, he got to be angry with God and go, hey, like, you haven't kept up your side of the deal. And now God has kept up their side of the deal. And suddenly, Abraham has responsibilities he didn't have before.
3: Well, and he was visited by angels who he provided hospitality to, and this miraculous thing happened. I mean, I just think, like, Abraham had a relationship with God before, but maybe he didn't really understand who God was or what kind of power God had or whatever. But I also think, Laz, you're right on something that this is a God who doubts themselves too, right? Should I tell Abraham? Should I clue Abraham in? Like it's almost like a spousal relationship. The kind I would be like, oh, should I clue in my husband that I'm gonna do this thing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like except God's thinking about destroying a city. <laughs> but the fact that God is saying, Should I include Abraham? is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm about to do something big, who do I consult? I might consult my best friend, my husband, of course, maybe a therapist or or someone who has experience in that area. But God says, should I consult Abraham? I think that's really interesting.
0: It's interesting, especially because why does God consider consulting Abraham and says, will I keep Abraham from what I'm about to do? And seems to give the three reasons for it. Abraham will certainly become a great populous nations and all the earth, earth's nation will be blessed because of him. That's reason number one. Doesn't seem, to me at least, related to (laughs) a reason to include Abraham in making this decision. Second, I have formed a relationship with him so that he will instruct his children and his household after him. That seems to be saying to me, he is a moral agent that needs to have moral responsibility. And so, you know, maybe this is a test. Maybe this is a, like, what are you going to do in this circumstance? And they will keep to the Lord's path, being moral and just, so that the Lord can do for Abraham everything God said God would. And so, like, first off, there's this nation that needs to be a blessing to everyone. Not necessarily that it's going to be, if I just let it loose, right? But that needs to have some sort of instruction to be able to do this. Maybe not instruction, but example. And, you know, all of these things that this text is supposed to be for the people of God. And then I form this relationship, seems to be like... I have formed this trusting relationship. I have this trusting relationship so that I can rely on Abraham to help me make these decisions. And then they will keep to the Lord's path, being moral and just, so that the Lord can do for Abraham everything. The God's path seems to be dictated, at least in part, by the decisions of the people that God is entering into relationship with. And so it seems like that is being weighed on the one hand, and on the other hand, God is saying, but... The shit going on in Sodom and Gomorrah is so terrible. How can I not do something myself? And so it seems to bring them in.
1: Now, I think God feels a responsibility also because he says that, you know, the cry has come up to me from Sodom. So it's not like God, you know, just said, oh, let me go check out Sodom, see if they're behaving themselves. People were screaming to God, you know, uh, do something about this. And so God feels an obligation to. The, the oppressed in Sodom, but then before he actually goes and executes judgment, I think he, he wants a second opinion from somebody who understands humans better than he does. I mean, I've been in situations, I was teaching in a prison and dealing with an inmate population that was mostly black, but also white. Sometimes I would say things that were well-intentioned, that just totally, you know, went off the rails, you know, didn't come out the way I expected them to. And on one occasion, I actually spoke with a black teacher's aide after the whole thing and said, you know, just what happened here? What was wrong? You know, and he said, you just cannot say that under any circumstances, you know, no matter what your intentions are, no matter how well you explain what you're trying to, to get across, you cannot say that. And I think maybe God is kind of looking for that kind of a counsel from a human. You know, what am I allowed to do to humans? That's kind of my feeling about it right now.
3: When it's interesting, we look at the creation story, God created, human, like God created a partner for Adam because it, it was almost like Adam was lonely. And I wonder if part of the sense is that, that God is lonely and wants companionship and this idea that here's, here's a friend, here's somebody he can depend on. I really like that. Uh, And yeah, the cry comes out from Sodom, but God does not save the people of Sodom who are suffering. And that is really difficult for me to to handle. Um, God does save Lot and Lot's wife and Lot's two daughters. Those folks are spared. And maybe some other people are, but fewer than 10 because God made a promise that if there were 10 people or more, the city would be spared. But does that mean that all these people who were oppressed and who were crying out to God are just forgotten about? But that's a part of the story I really struggle with.
1: Or maybe Lot was the one who was crying out. That is also possible.
2: I think that, now I'll say this next week, uh, when we talk more specifically about Lot's wife, but to Sarah's point right there, I think that, yeah, God doesn't save them, but God then learns from that destruction, right? But like when Lot's wife turns around and is turning to salt in the desert, right, it's valuable she is bearing witness right to this destruction to this unearned destruction and in that witness like she remains as a as a monument to this mistake of god this evil that should never have been done but also to like a testament to like the wickedness that god acted on but shouldn't have acted that way okay,
3: but didn't god already do this with noah part of me is like god god knows that people are wicked. <laughs> like, like everybody, you know, what but he says, Sodom and on, Gomorrah you know, is I'm another, I'm sweep up all and destroy all the good people with the bad. Like, it just feels like Sodom and
2: Gomorrah is the same story again, right? Because, yeah, for all intents and purposes, like they don't have Google Maps, right? Like, they can't see that they're really surrounded by all these other things. Like, for the people of those places. Like there might be travelers from some other places, but they live their lives in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, like, yeah, like that's, so when God's destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, God is effectively for those people destroying all the earth again. Right. Yeah. And so has God learned God's lesson? They should, but they haven't, you know, and like they're committing an evil again. Yeah. So yes, you're exactly right. Has God done what he done this? Yes. And God is going to do it again. And I think, like, the question, though, and what the text doesn't say here, is what is it that, like, it says, like, you know, God, like, God can hears the cries out for justice, you know, and, and hears the cries of the oppressed, but it, I, I wonder, like, what that actually is, like, is it that God has ears and is hearing those cries, and then, like, why hasn't God heard cries before, like, what makes these different? Or is it that, like, is it something about the ritual impurities that are going, you know, like, like they are sacrificing, but those sacrifices aren't being correctly answered? Because, I mean, I, I think, like, when we talk about, like, you know, ritual and, like, sacrifices, like, the, the odor of the sacrificed animals going up to God, right? That's the way, like, God's nose is awful big and, you know, and can really detect, like, which things are rightly sacrificed and not. Like, is it that that alerts God? Like, what? Like, because, like, we later will talk about, you know, that this, um, like the, like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is inhospitality, right? And but Ezekiel sixteen, like, it's very
3: clear this this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Ezekiel but sixteen forty nine. Passage: She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's that's the sin of Sodom.
2: But that's what they're saying. Like here, when the cries of the oppressed are going up, in this passage, it's unclear what exactly God is responding to, right? Like, why are these cries so different? Because this is so bad, but we don't know what the big bad is worse than anywhere else in history yet, post Noah, that, that's making God pre- commit an act like Noah again. You know, well, I, th- I think it's what it says in Ezekiel
3: like, that it's people aren't taking care of the poor, so God destroys the poor too. But it's almost like who's it? Eddie Izzard says it's a et- etch a sketch like start of the world <laughs> restart reset where you like draw on Sodom and then you kind of shake it up um, and start over, which is unfair to the poor. But it sim- similarly with Job, right, where everything is taken away, God restores everything to Sodom. All right, that's another part of the the passage in Ezekiel. I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes with them. So, there's a bigger picture? I guess, like, I, I'm thinking about all the little individuals and, like, you know, like the dog begging on the corner and, like, why did God wipe out that cute dog? That was not fair. Like, that was not a sinful dog. Why, like, all the creatures are destroyed.
2: God re- God restores God Job's, like, restores Job's fortunes, right? Uh-huh. God God has killed off all of Job's daughters, all of Job's wives, all of the cattle and promises to give you twice as many. I got to right. tell you, there are people that I love and just because you're going to give me twice as many, right? Yeah. Like that's not, that's not without grief, you know? Yeah. It's not like something destruction comes to your husband or to your child. Like that doesn't, yeah. d- like giving you two more children isn't like, oh, well, so this is better. So shut up about your grief. Like, you know, Like yeah. it still isn't actually a, personable God.
3: But maybe it's not personal, and that's the point, right? That it's not about the individuals Mm. who are there. It's not about their individual grief. It's about wiping this out and starting fresh for the people of God, like for the
2: long-term history. But then is that a God we should worship? I gotta be honest, like if you've got a God that doesn't care about, like if my own suffering doesn't matter to that God, if my own like place in history is just if I'm just a plaything in the bigger scope of the universe, that doesn't make me fulfilled as a person, but it also like, is that a God that I should give my life to? I mean, I don't know that it could be, you know? Like like I like this God less and less if that's the case, you know? Yeah,
3: but it's not that you're a plaything. It's not that you don't matter. It's that you're not the only thing that matters. At least that's what the the author of the book of Job would say, right? That god says well were you there when i created the universe you don't know the big picture and you're you're this tiny part and you are an important part but you're not like the world doesn't revolve around your experiences but then you know in christianity we have a much more well in a way a less personal god because god's not talking to us and showing up at our doorstep per se except in the form of jesus at the time of jesus
2: or to the Pentecostals and evangelicals. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay, all right, so we do have a personal god, but it's different. It's more about your individual relationship and I think culturally we're in a different place. And I think as Americans, especially, like the my world does revolve around me and my experiences and what I feel and that kind of thing as opposed to imagining what is God doing for the whole community and destroying Sodom even though there were innocent people who were lost, may have been part of the growth of the whole community. So, looking at and of course it wasn't literal, right?
0: It's worth talking about a couple of things here that I think that we have to go back to the internal logic of the story to remember, right? Mm. Like that Sodom does get destroyed, right? But God says, I will not yeah. dis- I will not destroy it if there are 10 innocent people, right? So God is looking for 10 innocent people. And we find no reason in, in the text to think that Lot was among the innocent. Th- there's no reason to think in the text that Lot and his daughters and his wife...
3: He did offer up his daughters to be assaulted by the crowd, to be fair. Yeah. So, like, innocent, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. So, like, he's 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 not a person of high moral standing either. Um, I think that it, he it's... Just
3: knew like noah right like noah wasn't innocent either but he knew about the flood
0: yes exactly he got
3: out he and his family and so lots family is protected which is also not fair and if we think about the context and the history of the people of israel right there were people who were sent into exile there were people who were killed and it it didn't make sense Mm -hmm. like the quote-unquote innocent people weren't necessarily spared yeah and maybe that's part of what this is about is, is saying listen there is a bigger picture no. There will be a return from exile. And the people who were lost, their lives matter in some way, but it, it's not fair and it doesn't all make sense.
0: Well, and, and I think that the way that their lives matter are those cries of injustice, right? The, if we actually mm. look at this, the, the ancients who are writing the Midrash um, seem to suggest that all the people who did any mercy... Were already killed by Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, there's the story of. Um,
3: oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: So there's a story of two girls who go out and get water, and um, only the rich one of the two of them is actually given the jug of water. And so she goes and shares it with the poor one. And when they, when it's found out that she shared this water with someone who's not of her class, they are both burned alive. Right. And
3: oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So the
3: people. So the. That is a fascinating perspective, Micah. The people who are innocent had already been destroyed like which is which is horrifying, like including the cute dog on the corner,
0: yes, exactly, <laughs> according to uh, Genesis Rabbah number fourteen. Lot actually had four daughters, and one of them was named um, Pelotet. And Pelotet was discovered doing hospitality within the community, just just being hospitable to an outsider. And because of that, she was sentenced to death, right? And then another part of the Mishnah goes into uh, the fact that or this belief that the beggars between Sodom and Gomorrah were literally forbidden from being able to uh, buy provisions and the things that they needed. So they would literally starve to death in the middle of these two cities. And then the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would go out and steal things off of their bodies, right? They would wait for them to die and then steal the tiny amount that they have left. So that is the context in which this is going on.
2: I mean, I hear you. I understand your point. Right. I understand your point, Sarah. (laughs) Like I'm with you. Right. We are on the same team and I hate it because (laughs) like, because this doesn't preach well to the community I serve. Right. Like I have like thinking about this in context, like two, two things. Right. So like this week um, I was sitting with some folks and we were talking to somebody who was new to St. Louis and we started talking about Kiwi Herring, who was a black trans woman killed, I participated in helping with her funeral like seven years ago, right? She was killed by police. She had an anti trans neighbor who really Mm -hmm. hated her. He found a reason when she was out on the porch to like start screaming at her, made threats to the police about how she was behaving. The police, instead of, you know, kind of showing up with mental health support and, you know, helping talk her down a little bit, Um, ended up shooting her in front of and killing her in front of her husband, who is also trans, and her children. Children are forever wounded. It's a whole thing, right? Children are now in care. And like husband is has charges pending against him or had I don't know where that case stands because he like when the police shoot his wife he runs over to his wife and the police say that you know he attacked them no he's rushing to help his wife as any of you all would do too right without thinking about the police trying to stand in this way and so like it's a whole mess and so I think about that and like I think about if we were to preach this how do you preach this in light of like a Kiwi Herring. You know, we have all kinds of these sort of stories. That's just the one from my intimate community. Like, how do you say, like, these people were already made for destruction? You know, they she was innocent but already destroyed. Or how do we say, like, God, you know, there's this bigger picture and it isn't about us? When in fact, like, I carried Kiwi Herring's children to say goodbye. And when we when I did, like, down, like, for this march, like, across town. And when I did, we were walking past one of the gay bars and kind of blocking entrance to it for a minute. And when the crowd, like, it like a thousand people, like, were, were kind of standing there. A white gay man got real annoyed he was going to be late to the drag show and ran through the crowd, so permanently injuring some more people. And, and you know, he could have killed more people. Like, it's just a whole thing where, like, it just adds, like, injury of the innocent to injury of the innocent. I also think, too, like, as like a trans person in a red state, right? Serving trans people in a red state. Like I've given up trying to find a job in my area. I'm probably going to have to move across the country, abandon my ministry, like all these kind of things. Like when I think about that, I have to believe in a God that hasn't already named me for destruction. You know, like we are talking about trying to survive the next like, little bit of time. And like, you know, we, un- we not jokingly talk about regularly, like, you know, like <laughs> it's probably not old age that'll get us, but it might be the state. Like, so it's those sort of things. So I think about that. And so like, how do you like, so, so to me, like, I have to believe, even though it feels very self-centered in a way that I don't like, and is isn't liberationist. I, I, I think I have to believe in a God that does these incredibly personal things in order to find hope, like, like pitch to me, if you can and explain, like, like pitch to me, where is the hope for, for Kiwi Herring or for my community if we, if we think that God isn't quite as personal? Because we are the
3: living body of Christ. It is our job to step in before everyone is destroyed by the hate, by the violence, all of that. So, so the hope here is that we care Right? And that there are still good people left, and there is hope, and there are people worth saving. And so and so it is our call and our duty, this is a Christian perspective, right, to step in before everyone is destroyed. Before God is like, okay, it's etch-a-sketch time, nobody's left.
0: Thank you so much to our wonderful guests, Arnold, Sarah, and Laz. Y'all are just fantastic. And unfortunately, we have to cut off this episode because we don't want to miss a single minute of yet another wonderful conversation. So, dear listener, come back next time to hear where we continue with this wonderful conversation. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things I mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And now, friends go and say to God, if there are just ten, let me be one of them. Shalom.